0: Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Season 8, Incidental Episode. Stephanie Phillips. there everybody. Welcome along to Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. My name's Len Sultana and each and every Sunday we talk Comic-Cons, Comic Cons, con culture and all the stuff and nonsense. We get to enjoy at such shows. If this is your first time watching this, thank you very much indeed for coming along. Um, perhaps uh, you've uh, fallen across it on our various social medias. We're showing this on Twitter, we're showing this on Facebook, we're showing this on Twitch of all things. I mean, I think I have an audience of a dog on a string over there. But thank you very much indeed for coming along if you uh, are watching on Twitch, watching on Periscope as well. if Wherever you're uh, coming along from, hit the notifications, hit the, uh, the subscribe. And of course, hit comments. Let us know what uh, you're thinking today, uh, what you'd like to talk about, uh, especially when it comes to our special guest for today. Um, This is somebody who, like I said just before we came on air, has had an amazing year. I've been following a number of the books that uh, she's been doing uh, over the course of 2020, but what she's got planned for next year and uh, what she's currently got on her plate... Is pretty damn impressive. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Stephanie Phillips to the show. How the devil are you, Stephanie?
1: Hey, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, doing not. all right.
0: <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, like I say, the uh, the show is usually about comic cons and con culture. We kind of talk about all the uh, the updates and the news of uh, shows uh, that are happening. Obviously, in 2020. Those are few and far between, if at all. Um, but uh, we uh, usually start with three questions and we'll find out a little bit more about your uh, uh, comic con uh, history, as it were. Uh, first things first, is a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Do you have a cup of tea to hand? What's your beverage of choice? Uh, uh, have you got something to hand over you?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a pretty big coffee drinker. I'm pretty uh, addicted to the stuff, but I, I do... <laughs> switch it up and drink uh, quite a bit of black tea as well.
0: <laughs> Excellent stuff. I'm on the PG Tips today, so uh, yes. I, <laughs> well, I, I've definitely needed it because today yeah. has been putting up of Christmas decorations day, <laughs> oh,
1: uh, yeah. which,
0: has, which has been frustrating the hell out of me considering that we've lost power packs. We've lost, uh-huh. uh, I've, I've got a whole bunch of new uh, drawing pins, all of which bent by the time I was pushing into the wall. So. I'm looking forward to this. This is my oasis for the next uh, (laughs) 45 or whatever. Uh, Question number two that we've been asking is, uh, can you remember your first Comic-Con, the one that you uh, uh, first remember attending, and do you remember going as a pro or as a fan?
1: I went as a fan. I went in high school to MegaCon Orlando. That was my first comic convention ever, and... Uh, I think we took the shuttle from, I knew somebody that worked at the convention, and so he got us special passes. Um, I remember taking the shuttle from the hotel to the convention, and there was like a fleet of stormtroopers on the bus. And I was just like, what is this magical thing that I've walked into? How how could this thing have existed in my life? And I just didn't know. So, um, yeah, I, I pretty much fell uh, pretty hard in love with that after after that before I even walked in the building. I was like this is so cool <laughs>
0: That's that's a great introduction. That's the way into it When I mean when the, you start getting hit by the bug before you even walk through the door That's that's yeah. something else. Excellent. I've heard good things about Megacon uh, I, I mean, I've heard that it was uh, it, oh, it is a really nice um friendly uh kind of uh event so uh no that's a good one to get started with and uh number two uh, sorry number three of the questions uh obviously uh as somebody who is uh very much established now in the world of comics um you do get the chance to go to cons and you do get the chance every once in a while to bump into those idols uh that have uh, influenced you over the years those ones that do leave you a little bit uh mouth <laughs> Weak at, at the knees, perhaps. Um, can you remember any of your meeting of your heroes moments? Yeah. Conference?
1: Um, I got to meet Frank Miller at a DC event, I think, uh, maybe a year two years ago in New York Comic Con. And uh, like, I just turned around from the bar and Frank Miller was just behind me. And it was just a moment like, you know, we we got to kind of say hi, and somebody introduced me. And I know he does not remember a single thing about this and will never and that's fine. But it was, you know, for me, it was really cool. It was like, that's, I'm, I'm not just standing in the same room, but like in the same little tiny bubble and he's talking to me. So that was well, just,
0: cool. just. Just thank goodness it was not in the 1980s. When a story starts <laughs> with the phrase, uh, I was standing at a bar and Frank Miller was behind me. That's usually the start of some epic. No journey around new york or then you're losing right. you, know, you know waking up in another com- continent or something so that, that's yeah. pretty cool um everyone on this corner or everyone in, on this podcast knows my frank miller story so i'm not going to uh, go into too much of it but basically i hosted um uh frank miller at uh, mcm comic-con a couple of years ago and yeah i have my brain leave uh step five foot to the right moment and i yeah i i lost my i lost my uh train of thought for a while but there we go (laughs) excellent stuff um for those people who perhaps aren't too familiar with your work um and heaven knows we're going to try and uh, cover as much as we possibly can certainly the more recent stuff uh because i mean i've got some uh uh, screen caps of uh, books which have really caught my attention over the last couple of years um perhaps you can give a little bit of a, a pocket introduction to yourself uh certainly um how you got into uh writing comics as a a genre was it something that uh you started uh straight away was it comics uh predominantly or were, what where where was your uh your writing history
1: yeah um i mean i always loved comics but i don't think i ever knew like making a comic as a job that's just like you know i don't think a lot of uh... You know, I don't know that a lot of people that pick them up really think about that. And um, I was just talking to, um, I have a cousin who's in fifth grade, and I talked to his class over Zoom the other day. And it was kind of interesting where they were like, people make these. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's how they're out in the world. But I totally understand that question, having kind of been on the other side of like, I never considered that as a career. Um, I went to graduate school for, I got my master's in English, and then Um, I went on to do my PhD in rhetoric and writing and um, I was doing academic publications and at some point I just I was like, well, I've been on the track to be like a professor for a really long time and I'm not sure that's what I want to do. Um, so like at this point in time, I've taught for like nine years I Just just, um, I, I don't know. I was just kind of like, maybe I don't want to do academic writing. There was a lot of kind of burnout feeling and I started going to conventions again. Like I kind of picked that up and um, yeah, I, I, I was interested, I think initially in video game writing and I wanted to work in the video game sphere of some kind. Um, and then I just kind of fell in with, um, you know, a group of really great that were like, why aren't you writing comics? And I was like, well, nobody's asked me that question. It's like, um, you know, I think a lot of people wait for permission to do that kind of thing. And, you know, (laughs) somebody was like, you don't need that permission, just go do it. So, um, I, uh, you know, hired an artist to help me do like a short pitch and, Um, I heard a couple, did a few different pitches and kind of went on to make all of those. One of those was Double Within, which I published through Black Mask. Um, Another was Kicking Ice, which I kickstarted with Jamie Jones. Um, So, yeah, I think those were like my earliest kind of forays into comics. And then from there, kind of
0: You're saying falling into it, but (laughs) it sounds like you kind of, (laughs) you fell headfirst. I mean, going full into Kickstarter, uh, I mean, the fact that um, it, when it came to putting together a pitch, you were, you you went all ahead and got an artist involved. You got you kind of got those pages uh, up and running. Because I, I, when I hear about uh, writers breaking into the industry or, or making that introduction, I, I think a lot of editors and a lot of companies they want to see that you can actually kind of do a finished page. You can. It's not just a case of just putting words down onto the page. It is a case of constructing a comic to flow with um in terms of the balance between art and uh, the dialogue and whatever else you need to do uh and uh, the story that you need to tell on the page and the fact that you actually uh, got an artist uh and commissioned them to actually uh put a page together is um that's an interesting uh, story to take
1: yeah um I, I think it was uh you know a couple artists were like you have to make a comic to make comics which you know initially was like what is this riddle that you are saying like this makes no sense but it's like (laughs) no it actually kind of it kind of did make sense in the end it was like well I have to prove that I can do this before somebody will hire me to do it so um, you know I I was lucky I was in grad school at the time um, but I was also working so along with teaching I was I was coaching at a muay thai gym and i used pretty much all the money from muay thai coaching to pay an artist so i kind of saved up for a while and then i was like all right now i'm ready to kind of bring this artist on i brought man house in to do um i think we did like maybe 10 pages of the first issue of devil within and then we started pitching it um we actually had interest from more than one company and uh we got to kind of pick where we placed that and then you know man and i finished the full series together so um that was really exciting
0: Excellent. Excellent stuff. Um, skipping forward uh, a little bit. I mean, the reason uh, why uh, we have been connected, uh, when I said at the beginning, in, before my intro, we have been, uh, uh, we've been match met, as it were, uh, in in this regard. Um, and this has been uh, put together by uh, Heavy Metal Magazine, uh, because uh, you are involved in putting a, a new rendition of uh tana up on uh, the uh, screen let's have let's have you on there as well uh tana uh the last uh Takari, uh you've been teamed up with uh, patch Zerka, uh and also um with uh marcello is on uh, colors uh this is a, a, a very striking character to uh, to take on um i i remember watching heavy metal and it is the the final chapter of the the, the film uh, and uh, it was a hell of a note to for the the, the film to finish on, but um, it is very much uh, a boy's own fantasy of that kind of strong. What when? when okay, when you ask a uh, a, um, a weightlifter what a strong woman is, it's it's right. Tana. It's the it's uh, lots of muscles and kind of not talking a great deal. well mute in fact (laughs) Which, which kind of begs the question then um what drew you to tana or how did you get involved into the character what was your introduction to to her world
1: yeah, uh, I mean, I'm familiar with with the movie, and I'm like, I'll admit, I don't know that. Like, when I was first introduced to the movie, I'm not sure I, I saw it all the way through, which you can imagine as like, you know, a female. I don't think I, I did.
0: <laughs> I think I think I, think I saw it over. A, I think I I don't think anyone has. I think everyone saw it over like a three year period. Uh, they just kind of like caught it on. Um, and I yeah. feel like
1: everybody has different memories of it, so maybe we yeah. all watch something different. Oh, it's, definitely <laughs> a, it's definitely
0: a fever dream. Oh yeah. I mean,
1: that's exactly what it is um, <laughs> um so when I was offered you know the chance to write Tarna you know I went and I re-watched the movie from beginning to end and uh you know there's there's definitely some like different memories in my head of like I think in my head I was like oh man Tarna is this really strong cool like warrior figure and I'm watching you know the the movie and I'm just like and she's tied up a lot and like, you know, there's, there's definitely like very little female involvement in this character's development. <laughs> and um, I think that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to be involved, which was like how I, I think the character does have that potential. And I'm not knocking the original or anything like that. I think our version really does build from that. Um, I think, you know, my take on it and, you know, I've still had these questions, which is, you know, looking at the outfit she's wearing, how can I bring a feminist perspective? And honestly, I just think it's like, how amazing does this character have to be that she's staring down entire universes and dying stars and like cosmic entities filled with chaos and it doesn't matter what she's wearing because she's not actually a woman she's an entire embodiment of a universe so there really isn't a sexuality to Tarna and I think that that maybe wasn't portrayed all the way because of, you know, the initial audience for the movie, which I understand <laughs> the reception. Um, but I wanted to to take that and say, like, wait a minute, <laughs> she doesn't have sexuality. She can stare down gods but naked, and she's still be amazed because that doesn't enter into her head. Um, so, you know, whether she is completely clothed or not doesn't actually matter to Tarna. She can change her shape, she can change her appearance, um, because she cosmic entity which is actually i think really cool um and then one of the awesome things that i got to do with tarna as well is um later design more of like a a battle armor type look for tarna which i'm really excited about so um we do get to kind of change up and play with the costume a bit um as well so i i've really enjoyed writing her
0: sure Uh, i mean certainly thinking of uh when i remember seeing the film and certainly thinking back of it uh after years gone by it's the same kind of approach that i think of when i when someone mentions about strong female characters in chris achilleos's w- artwork mm. um okay yes they're strong uh, and they're female <laughs> but, uh, but they're not what we in uh 2020 would uh the, the, the term strong and female it's a, it's a slightly different uh, take on it um the the story itself in the film, the one thing it did do is have this really grand epic. Um, certainly, the like you say, the 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 ability for her to uh, transform and to embody, and also to transmute uh, into uh, other people, Uh in, in the the small girl at the the end in the the, the epilogue. Um, At which point then do you have to kind of make, I mean, you you talk about um, Tana as a a, a slightly more, you you mentioned there's more ephemeral. It's more of a, a, like you say, the the embodiment of a universe, as it were. But you do have to kind of solidify that at points. You have to make that a very um, distinct character. Um, What was your take on her as a character then? Um, in terms of what um, her drives were. Because they, they they weren't exactly nailed down in the film.
1: Right. No, I agree with that. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to do was give her something to contrast. So what do you do with a figure that is really this like cosmic entity that really, we don't know the limits of her. And my thought was, let's find those limits. Let's test them. What is the limit of this character's power? Um, And what is it like to have the weight of an entire universe on your shoulders? Not just one planet. She's responsible for thousands of planets, um, thousands of creatures and people. Um, So one of the things I did was give her this kind of partner figure, a woman from uh, a city that she saves ends up kind of hitchhiking with Tarna, and it becomes this real contrast where this woman is like trying to figure out what is Tarna. Um, And we get to kind of see Tarna through her eyes, but it also tests a little bit of like, Tarna now has somebody that cares about her, which in Tarna's life she's never had. So she's kind of developing this bond with somebody um, that is unusual for Tarna because like if you're this cosmic entity like who watches over you kind of thing but in a nice way like you know you don't really have friends you have charges. Um, you have things that you are responsible for keeping alive. And so when she has somebody that's actually concerned for her well being this becomes a little bit uh, unusual something Tarna's not used to so it kind of create cool relationship between those two characters. Um, and I really enjoyed kind of seeing that grow and also find ways to ch- um, test the limits of Tarna's ability. So I don't want her to be completely impervious to everything in the universe. So we, uh, we want to find, okay, what is that limit? You know, she can't be in every single place at once. So sometimes it becomes like a trolley problem where Tarna has to make decisions and they're not always the right decisions. So, you know, we see entire civilizations of people that are like, okay, you saved us from the sun exploding, but now we need medicine, we need food and all these things. And Tarna's like, can't help you. Bye. And it's not because (laughs) she's a jerk. It's because like, you know, she's concerned with making sure the sun doesn't explode. Like there are different levels of problems in Tarna's life. And we're kind of seeing how she deals with the different variations of those problems, the different levels and kind of how, um, a godlike creature has to make these decisions, and I think that was the interesting part about kind of testing that limit. Like she is not saving every single person and solving every single problem because she physically can't, um, and that takes a toll on any. It would take a toll on anyone, but it really does take a toll on somebody that's really empathic in the way that I think Tarna is.
0: Yeah. Um- I I, would, I haven't read the book yet um I, I, well obviously uh, it's uh, it's uh, on its way it's imminent but uh, yeah. I mean when i mentioned Chris chrysiklios and when i mentioned the uh, the original film it's very much sent uh, built around a 1980s sensibility it's non-more metal uh, i mean when it's it, <laughs> when it, it's, off, it's off the pages of heavy metal it's non-more mm-hmm. metal um But the way you're describing the character and the way you're talking about the the evolution of the story and what you're wanting to bring to it, you're very much talking about a very much more contemporary um, uh, 2020s um, kind of uh, sensibility when it comes to the approach of character, the approach of story. Um, what was the b- balance that you wanted to try and, and achieve between that original take of Tana and the original kernel of the idea—that real kind of nineteen eighties,
1: you know, yeah, uh, kind of vibe
0: to—and then the, the, the kind of uh, the, the the very much more contemporary, mm-hmm. introspective um, deconstruction of a character. What, I mean, there are some uh, stories which can hold up without so much deconstruction and just drive through story, as it were, or drive through energy, and that's what you kind of—that's <laughs> what the original film was, or that original yeah. idea was. This is a real kind of arc between the two. Whereabouts on the spectrum would you say you're trying to hit?
1: Um, I mean, she's got a giant sword. I like swords. (laughs)
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: (laughs) I wanted to give her something to beat up. Um, You know, I wanted it to be really heavily action-packed. I think one of the things as a writer I haven't really had a chance to do before Tarna was do something that I would describe as just really cosmic, Um, like giant epic battles. A lot of what I write is really grounded like historical fiction or um, you know kind of like a slice of life type of thing. Tarna's on a whole different scale and I was like if I'm gonna do this character and you know I, I, I definitely told Joe Illidge our, our editor when he brought me on board I was like I'm definitely looking for a story that will let her just beat the crap out of giant monsters. Like um, <laughs> I want all of the other elements. I want to think really heavily about how I'm constructing her character, but I also want giant monsters. Like I just, she's got a cool sword. She's going to have some battle armor. Like I want it to be awesome and metal, like you said. So um, Patrick Zercher, the artist, um, the first two issues, uh, we spent some time kind of developing these old cosmic um, creatures that are unleashed in the first issue and there's three of them um and tarna has to track down these entities and each one has a special ability so um you know tarna can't fight them the same way each time because you know some can fly some have some have fire one has like poison skin and Um, so each one poses a really different challenge for Tarna and we thought this will be super fun, right? Like we can have some where she's in water. We can have some where she's flying on Avis, which, um, you know, Avis is my favorite character. So I'm gonna like not, not include Avis in every chance I get. So, um, I think one of the other things I did was really make Avis a lot more, uh, he has more of a personality in this in the way that I think like a lord or dog because I think Avis is super cool so um, there were a few scenes where we were like oh do we hurt Avis and I'm like no no Avis is sacred we spare Avis Avis never gets hurt (laughs) like for (laughs) those who don't know the flying creature that Tarna flies on so um, yeah yeah, I love Avis
0: excellent um the thing that I've been uh, drawn to all of your writing is that um i mean number one just the the range of styles that you uh, tap into uh it, it's uh, <laughs> the word eclectic uh, comes into <laughs> mind um uh, it, it's safe to say um with this um i'm it, like i say that that balance between that kind of uh, deconstruction and the, the 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 very action drawn but then that also uh, implies uh, just how far you want to take uh, the story and um, how far you're planning ahead and what kind of adventures and kind of what timeline you're looking at of uh, how far you're wanting to take the character. Because it is born out of uh, a chapter of a film, very small, very contained. You're wanting to extrapolate it uh, into uh, something uh, a lot larger. Uh, how far have you gone in terms of um, how many volumes, how many issues, how far have you road mapped what you're doing with Tana?
1: Um, we've road mapped six issues, and then um, within those six issues, we kind of see elements of the universe that will be explored outside of Tarna. So kind of one of the things we're doing is working to connect um, all of the heavy metal books. So there's kind of like a heavy metal universe. Um, and then some of those characters that we see within the Tarna issues kind of will get their own issues or things that we explore outside of Tarna as well. So um it's it's pretty big in terms of again we're dealing with like a character that has thousands of planets within one universe but then also there's other universes so um so it's pretty big and i think that's a lot of fun being able to uh then pick up the threads of tarna in other issues or the characters we see in tarna in other series as well
0: now i I mean the, the actual um the 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 uh, the story uh, when it came in the film. I mean, I know it's based on the Mobius um, strip, which name kind of escapes me. Uh, I'm wondering how much you're drawing from that uh, for your story, or is it literally coming all out of your, extrapolating yeah. from your brain and just going head forward? How far, what have you been drawing from to take the story forward?
1: Um. I mean, definitely drawing some of the design elements, like I I would say, you know, it's a weird thing to design a whole bunch of planets and try to think about the ways that like these planets might not operate in the way that our planet does. Like, how does gravity or water or something work different on this other planet, Uh, which has been, I mean, really fun, but also I think the biggest challenge because it's like you have to think in a way that I, I haven't normally and uh, a lot of that world building, you know, pulling from somebody like Mobius who was incredibly creative and just having books of that artwork open to be like, how did he just draw a city that you knew was a city but doesn't actually look like any city we've ever seen before. So really trying to pull from those elements of just really crazy design features and um, build something really new that maybe we've never seen before.
0: Cool, uh, which then kind of begs the question, um, obviously comics are a collaborative effort. Um, what has Packed Zercher brought to the project? Uh, what's the conversations been like um yeah. what uh, story elements has he brought in what's it, uh, and how's it evolved that original pitch um from seeing what he's brought to the page?
1: yeah um I mean it's great being able to work with somebody that you just really trust to be an incredible storyteller um you know, patches somebody that's been in the industry for a long time so it's you know it's really nice to be able to reach out and be like, hey, I had this idea for like giant monsters but you know if, Patch is going to be drawing them, I want to make sure that you included this conversation of like, what are their powers, what do they look like, what's the scale compared to Tarna, so um, getting to have those kinds of conversations I think is really helpful because then you can go back to the scripting process and be like, okay, now I have a good idea of how we can make this work with the artist, so it's kind of like fitting in the puzzle pieces as you go, and um, I really don't think we could do that without Patch coming in and saying like, what if this monster had this cool poison skin that did X, Y, and Z, and it's like, that's amazing. So you know, I don't know that I would have thought of that. So um, absolutely, you know, Patch really helped develop where the story's going, what these characters look like, what the environments look like, uh, you know, being able to build cities or species that we've just never seen before. Um, you know, I, I come up with some ideas, but then, you know, you see Patch run them and it's like, Whoa! <laughs> That's mind blowing and awesome. And you know, it kind of—I—I I think it feeds off of the other, right? Like he comes up with something really cool, and that gives me an idea for something, which gives him an idea. It's really—it's—it's it's nice to have that kind of collaborative uh, process on the back end.
0: I, I think with most comic artists, as long as it's not involving horses, a lot of city <laughs> backgrounds. Right. and period vehicles or weapons. I think from there it's yeah. just anything yeah yeah it just it just keeps going. Um right. the other thing I'm drawn to as well uh, and I'll bring up another uh, the pages again the the color work uh, that's been done uh, by Marcello is just absolutely stunning. Um
1: the color work here is actually uh, Jessica Colleen on the first two issues. Oh okay.
0: Okay. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> No, no, no. Thank you you very much for correcting me. Uh, Because, I mean, what I was uh, about to say, certainly from uh, just from what I was seeing from the original page, and if we could just bring this up so everyone could just go full screen so everyone could see it, it's it's definitely uh, drawing from the epic and drawing from the cosmic. Um, And uh, that's what I was seeing from the colours. But, um, okay, so... How is the creative team evolving moving forward? Because, uh, like I say, I, I was under the impression that Machado was doing the art, uh, the colors for the series.
1: Yeah, um, so the first two issues are Patrick Zercher, and then there are actually... Uh, every two issues are kind of like a set. So there's two a uh, new artist on issues three and four, and then another artist on issues five and six. Um, so How does
0: that kind of work then? Because um, obviously it's a, different, it's a different team, it's a different energy... Yeah.
1: Uh, I, I mean, I think it's really fun because we get to, again, have three people that are developing really cool elements for the universe. And um, I know at least, I don't think all of the artists have been announced yet, but at least for issues like, you know, between issues four and five, there are some carryover elements. So, like, getting to see threads where one artist is designing something that an, another artist is kind of running with other elements Um it's definitely unlike anything that I've done before, but the cool thing is getting to see, like we now have a pretty giant team of people working on the book and that just means more awesome ideas and um, more elements I think to these worlds that we're trying to create to make it really unique and cosmic.
0: Yeah, it also helps as well when you've got a rather good editor keeping yes. things in line as well and keeping everyone uh, on yes. track as well. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Uh, something that I've been uh, catching up with uh, a couple of people uh, over the course of the summer, and uh, certainly uh, the, the slightly uh, the, the newer breed, uh, they appreciate the multimedia aspects and they understand that there are other elements to just reading a comic. Uh, I have to ask, what would be on the Spotify list for uh, <laughs> T- Tana the Last Comic? Cool.
1: I love the original soundtrack. That <laughs> is. It's actually it's really good Um, (laughs) uh, Man if I had to build a new one I that might have to like be something that I do at some point but to be quite honest, I like the original so much that I would be like Messing with something that was already really good Um, I did listen to the original soundtrack a lot while writing this and uh, (laughs) that that was good inspiration music
0: (laughs) Excellent stuff You've got the books lined lined up. Uh, what's the kind of release schedule of uh, of uh, the Lastokarian? Um, uh, yeah, but what is it monthly? What, what's the how's this book coming out?
1: Yeah, it's monthly. So the first issue comes out next Wednesday. Was it the? Twelfth? No, it's today the eleventh. No, no, I
0: don't true. even know. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, uh, oh, trust me, this is 2020. What a fantastic decade it's been. Um, uh, the t- time is effer- it's it's effer- It's, it's weird.
1: We're 60- like in a black yeah. hole or something. Um, yeah, so whatever Wednesday is, uh, that's when the first book comes out, and then it's monthly from from there.
0: Cool. So that'll be the sixteenth. If you want to go and check out uh, uh, Tana the Taka- uh, Last Um this is a, a work uh, that's come from the pages of Heavy Metal and from the, the original film. Are there any other Heavy Metal uh, aspects or Heavy Metal characters that you would like to have a crack at? Um, uh, um. Considering, like I mean, like I say, eclectic yeah. is definitely in your uh, CV, uh, so you can pick. You can pick from any of the aspects of. Uh, yeah. Where would you like to go?
1: Um, so, I mean, I kind of got my favorite one right off the bat, which is nice. But I also <laughs> love Urcus, who does appear in the Tarna series. urkus is um, the green guy that's, you know, the, the big baddie in yeah. the in the actual movie. Um, he does appear in our story, but I actually just really enjoyed writing this villain, which, I mean, he's horrible, <laughs> but it's really fascinating because, you know, this is somebody that was taken over by Tarna's kind of opposite, uh, Keiko, this kind of, like, godlike entity of chaos, instead of, you know, Tarna, who is light and good. Um, and he has been transformed into, like, this agent of chaos, and I have really enjoyed writing this villain that Waltarna is like almost all empathy Urkus is completely the opposite, like just really horrible and watching him command an entire army. Um, I, you know, the artists have brought him to life amazing, but I, I would really enjoy doing more with Urkus. <laughs> That'd
0: be cool. Right. So uh, when I talked about uh, the, the other things that you've got, uh, kind of on the fire um i when i kind of uh, talked to you when we were kind of getting the interview set up uh is uh, a book which is absolutely blowing me away so i'd like to talk a little bit about red atlantis if you wouldn't mind uh this is a book that's come from aftershock um it's creator owned art by robert curry colors by Roche, letters by troy patery um right I can imagine there are a number of touchstones which I can go to uh, when it comes to describing this, um, uh, and all of them from the nineteen eighties. Oddly enough, <laughs> maybe maybe it's just my age. I don't know. Um, but uh, what was what is your elevator pitch for this particular book? Because it has yeah. a it has a very eighties vibe to it.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think actually the coolest thing about this book, I didn't create this book. This book was created by Jan Newman. Um, Jan was a Russian spy who has defected to the US and currently still works in intelligence services here in the US. So um, this story was actually created based on his experiences. um, And you can go and read his life story online, which I encourage you to do because it's incredible. So after defecting to the U.S., uh, this story and I think a couple others he's been writing, a lot of them really uh, pull from his experience in intelligence services, which is wild and amazing and... Um, getting to add those elements into a book about spies <laughs> is really cool. Um, so I think we we probably heard uh, a lot of the history behind things like MK Ultra, things about like mind control or drug experimentations. And Russia had their own version of this, where they were trying to solidify something like mind control. Um, so this pulling from a lot of the history that Jan has provided provided the team with. Um, we are watching. A young girl named Miriam who uh, was sent to the U.S. after her parents died in Russia. She was um, and she's kind of figuring out who her parents were much later in life. They were actually scientists for Russia that helped develop these mind control programs. And she kind of starts to realize that they may have given her the same uh, programming that some of these Russian agents had. So she might have powers of her own.
0: Um, I okay. I'll I'll say Firestarter, yeah. um, I'll say um, there's um, there's a strong Terminator vibe. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly in issue two, um, yeah. there is that kind of uh, that action eighties action kind of vibe to the uh, thing. Um, I'm really curious as to what your touchstones were. When it came to writing the story, obviously, like say, you had the the original, uh, yeah. the, the the draft, as it were, the 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 the, uh, the, the kind of uh, the framework to build on. But what were your own kind of touchstones when it comes to uh, putting this book together?
1: I think you're listing a lot of my favorite movies. <laughs> movies uh terminator is one of my favorite movies um you know i i did go and watch a lot of spy movies tinker taylor soldier spy um you know things things like that to kind of just get a feel for it the other thing i did was honestly talk to jan quite a bit about what it was like to be in the intelligence services in russia um which is obviously not my experience personally so getting to kind of pull from that um another thing which is like A really cool touchstone to get to do is talk to Jan about how a Russian spy is trained to fight, (laughs) which is really cool. Um, like I I am a trained fighter, but in Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu, and so I initially started writing fight scenes based on like what I know. And Jan just called me one day and he was like, That's not how we fight. And I was like, Okay, well, it, like elaborate, and he's like, "You want to get on like a Zoom call with me and my wife, and we'll like show you some moves." <laughs> <I'm> like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. "Absolutely!" Even if not for the book, just like I want to be trained like a spy. Like this sounds cool. Um, so getting to work really collaboratively with him to, like, add in elements of... At, at some point, we do have characters speaking Russian and catchphrases that, um, you know, that Jan has brought in, things that, again, I, I would not know that are really cool. Um, things about, like, the Russian spies are trained to use everything around them. So, like, in this first scene where we have the character Sasha coming to interact with the FBI agents, um, like, I think I initially had him doing some cool, like, martial arts moves, and they were like, nope, he's got to, like... Uh, We had him throw coffee. Um, He's like using their items against them. So it's this very clever way of thinking that, you know, clearly Jan has been trained to do this. And um, it was really fascinating to get to listen to that and then find ways to really embed that in the story that we were telling.
0: That's really cool. Um, We have... uh, an eclectic uh audience as it happens uh, indeed someone of note uh, joining us uh, nigel parkinson's uh, here hello there nigel hello the devil are you sir uh my colorist nika was from the soviet union in the 80s so i'm going to point her towards this so uh, yeah there we go uh, certainly uh, we could uh, go in that direction um it's a very when it comes to the, the books that you have been bringing out uh, like i say there is a a a, a real spectrum of the the kind of age ranges that you're aiming for Uh, there's there's different styles different tones whatever this is very much um, uh, a (laughs) teen plus this is very much uh, a a violent uh, book but it's violence which is really born from the story it's it's very justified it's it comes from a real kind of energetic place Um, how far did you want to push this book uh, like i say um I was drawing uh, when I was reading I was very much sensing those those 80s action movie overtones and like you say those 70s and 80s uh, spy movies but those were kind of bombastic and they uh, they threw a lot of uh, the um the, the red kind of paste at the screen as it were um how far did you want to go with this particular book?
1: Um, So I think one of the cool things is, uh, I mean, what Jan has created is a really extensive universe for Red Atlantis. This is huge. Um, In some ways, I would think of these first five issues that we've done as almost a prequel to how extensive this universe is and gets to be. Um, So, I mean, yes, Jan and I have definitely talked about, you know, continuing it, doing more with it. He has more. And um, Miriam's story, as you'll see as we get through Uh, to issue five it's almost like it's just beginning like there is I would say these first five issues the first arc is like Miriam really finding out who she is and a lot of it is unknown to her. She had no idea her her parents were scientists for Russia Um, and you know she's questioning like what was their what was their purpose? Were they helping Russians do something terrible um, or did they sacrifice themselves to stop something? So um, She's kind of finding her place in all of it, and I really like—I really liked the arc of somebody that starts out as like a student. Um, you know, day one we see her kind of going to class and being a really good journalism student, and by the end of this, she is a wildly different character. And it, it reminds me a little bit of something like *Unforgiven*, which you know is one of my favorite movies because you just take this person that's like never killed before, but is a little pompous, and by the end when you figure out what it's like to actually kill somebody, And what that takes like you have this really extensive character arc that i think you see in this person's actions and i I very much see that with miriam too where she as her powers develop she gets closer and closer to this edge and it's kind of like is she going to jump off of this and be a completely different person or is she going to retain the characteristics of the person we met in issue one who was a student hard worker wanted to be a journalist and and what is she going to look like at the end of these uh at the end of this arc so um i really enjoyed getting the chance to write about miriam
0: cool uh i mean certainly uh, with that character um that had the, the a very similar frustrations that I usually get with the action movie genre which is the one which is being told and almost shown well it's being shown what's going on and just no no I what well, that's crazy and it's taking so long for the yes. for the penny to for the penny to drop um but when it does it drops in a huge fashion um so I've read the first two issues uh, and um what we're kind of seeing from the potential of Miriam um, is uh, something which is exciting to kind of uh, explore and develop. I'm curious as to um, how far you feel uh, you want to develop that straight off the bat. Uh, how how powerful do you want to get um, within the first four or five issues?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I mean, you touched on something that I think is interesting about Miriam, which is we're not really seeing her make her own decisions. Like there's a lot yeah. of people that are saying, whether it's the FBI agents, whether it's Sasha, there's a lot of people saying, here's what we need to go do. You're along for the ride. Um, so, I mean, I, not to spoil things, but I do want to see her have a chance to come into her own and finally say, here's what I'm going to do about all of this. And I think that's an important moment for her, which is like kind of getting swept up into something that...
0: You're you're wanting the Sarah Connor from Terminator 3 and (laughs) 4, a little bit earlier.
1: Yeah, Um, but I think Miriam needs to earn it a little bit. So, you know, getting swept up and, you know, listening to Sasha in some of these life or death, death moments, I don't think is a bad thing, given that he knows. And this is also going to be the person that's going to, I think in a lot of cases, help pull her back from that ledge. Um, you know, make sure she isn't using her powers for something bad. Um, And what are those powers? Uh, Like, how do they actually operate? Are they the same as other agents that we are seeing from the Red Atlantis uh, universe? Or is she something a little bit different? And um, that's something that she needs to explore. But it's almost like multiple crises for her. It's like, who were my parents? Do I have living relatives? Am I Russian or American? And she has basically two countries that she's caught between. Like the Americans want to catch her because they think she's involved in something. And the Russians um, are, as we see, having some kind of crazy mind control ability. So she's she's really stuck in this like weird space of who she's going to be. And I think all of it is just lending to the ability for Miriam to, at the end of this, be like, you know what? I'm just going to tell you what I am. I am and what I'm gonna do and that's how it's gonna be now (laughs) which I which I quite like Uh,
0: I mean I I, it's very difficult to see a commonality to your stories because like uh, we said there's an eclectic uh, sense of story and tone uh, to your work which is exciting uh, because you Mm -hmm. you, there's a a quality control there which is great uh, and the the the, the writing is of high quality but you the, the the different story tile uh, uh, types are just uh, all over the place. But what I see as a commonality, uh, perhaps, and please shout me down wrong if I <laughs> if I've misread this, is there is that sense, and that's it's really strong with uh, uh, Red Atlantis, of uh, the male characters in the story wanting to drive the story in one direction, and a strong female character going standing there almost like. The, the, the tree and the, the wind said, so, no, this is I'm going to take control of my life. I'm going to take control of my in, uh, destiny and my impetus moving forward. And I think a, a, a good example of that um, is A um, um, Man Among Ye, uh, which yeah. you brought out. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing that as a definite thread of a commonality. Am I hitting the right point there? Is that something that uh, drives you as a writer?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I, I had a, um, actually the director of my my dissertation in graduate school used to tell me that we write about things that we don't understand, because those are things that we're constantly trying to work out. Um, so I I mean, I definitely think for me, one of the things that has emerged as well is identity and emerging identity. So, you know, Miriam has this chance to change her identity, to shape it. And everyone around her is trying to shape it. So it kind of becomes this like, I'm going to shape this on my own. And I think the same thing with A Man Among Ye. Um, you know, I, I, not so much Anne, but maybe Mary is really having this like, um, what is my identity? <laughs> You're going to be moving forward. Um, having the influences of people like her father, Anne, uh, Jack Rackham and um, these different people in her life. And is Mary ultimately gonna be like, all of you i'm going to make my own decisions or things like that and i i am interested in emerging identity and um, maybe not just for female characters i'm doing a book right now with peter Krauss that actually has an all-male oh, wow. cast, but the identity issues actually stem from religion so our protagonist is a uh, jewish man in the 1930s and that um, that is interesting to explore as well so just kind of trying to come at identity from a lot of different angles so i know identity is like a huge broad category <laughs> <laughs> where's
0: that, where that coming where's that coming from what how when's that coming down the line
1: um that, I, I'm, I'm a yeah, peter
0: Krauss yeah. fan so i'm curious <laughs> okay
1: uh yeah 2021 i uh i don't think we have a set release date but it shouldn't be too far into 2021 and uh that is yeah and i mean writing harley quinn i mean there's. Probably not. There's a lot of characters in the DC universe that I think have like an identity crisis, but Harley. I mean, <laughs> talk about you see, somebody. I, I
0: do. I do love it when the people I'm interviewing spot my segues coming a fucking awesome. mile away. So, then, <laughs> yes, uh, when, it, when it comes to uh, characters, point. which yeah, when it comes to characters which um, are very much uh, determining their own uh, identity, yeah. Harley is definitely up there. Um, she's somebody who has been defined by so many other people, uh, including the Joker, including her own relationships or other relationships with the uh, other characters uh, in the DC universe. She's somebody that has, when it first started, and I, I kind of brought this up with James Tynan, um when he was talking about Punchline, uh, because it's that's a character that is out of the gate, is defining who she is. Harley isn't. Harley was somebody that has been Appropriated, not only in on the pages of comics, but also in pop culture as well by um, cosplayers, by just the by pop culture in general. She's somebody who has never had a real (laughs) sense of her own destiny. Um, It's only in the recent years where she's just put a flag in the sand and gone, "Okay, I've had enough of this shit. This is who I am." Is that where we're going with the Harley Quinn future state? Because we are talking obviously an extrapolated version of the character.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I would say we're at the point where we've gotten a lot of Harley content up to this point. That's, um, you know, all about who am I post Joker. Um, And so now I think we're over that hurdle as well. Like (laughs) now we are post Joker. And what does that look like? You know, it's not birds of prey. It's not a group story. It's, Harley Quinn, and um, I mean, I think that that has been a lot of fun because I want to pit her against people that Maybe a little like Tarna really push her. So how do we solve a problem that can't be smashed? And uh, I mean, of course, we want the smashing because she's got a baseball bat and it's super fun. Um, but she's also, I think, one of the smartest people in the room. Like we're talking about somebody with multiple degrees. She's got a doctorate degree. Like,
0: yeah, that kind. That kind of it not only gets forgotten, but also yeah. just in her kind of uh, the way that she's expressed uh, and and the, yeah. the, the language she uses. It's almost like she deliberately dumbs herself down to be right. kind of underestimated. Mm-hmm. Uh, And
1: I don't think that's a bad thing because I think that that's a weapon, right? Like if somebody doesn't know how smart and clever you can be, they're going to underestimate you and then she can take advantage of it, which was a lot of fun to play with in future state to pit her against other people like Jonathan Crane that are in their own right pretty smart, but their biggest flaw is underestimating a character like Harley Quinn. They think, well, if we take away her baseball bat, she can't hurt us, but that's when she kind of gets to shine like this is she is going to toy with you she's going to play with you she's 10 steps ahead of other people in the room she's kind of got things mapped out and getting to crush the egos of people like jonathan crane or roman sionis is just wonderful i love that (laughs) like that's a lot of fun and then in the harley ongoing we're kind of keeping with that as well um you know we've pitted her against some some pretty big people in gotham so while we have this harley that um, you can kind of see in the in the Tynan series somebody that's developing a little bit of a closer relationship with the Bat family in Gotham. Um, this is somebody that's kind of shown up at the last minute to maybe be a good guy. Um, but what does that relationship look like post-Joker War is kind of the question we want to ask. And, you know, how do we then navigate a character that has been really good at following somebody else's lead, whether it's Suicide Squad or... Um, Birds of Prey. like There's always kind of been this group element. So now she's seeing the Bat family and it's like, what does that do for Harley Quinn? Does Harley want to be Bat Quinn? <laughs> or does she sure. still find a way to really hone that independence in a new way? Because this is her first time really steadily back in Gotham in a while. So um, leaving Coney Island and then coming back to kind of remake a life in Gotham the last time she was living in Gotham she was maybe not the hero <laughs> that <she's, laughs> she wants to be or try to be. So um, in our version, you know, she's got a lot to make up for. Um, there are a lot of apologies to dole out, but um, I, I think it's also just going to be a lot of fun. Artist Riley Rosmo on the ongoing, I mean, every time he turns in a page, I think we're all like, that's my favorite page. I know I've said that 30 times already, but <laughs> it's, it's so good. Uh, she's so expressive um, that Riley's designs for her, like, you know, we've got a new costume for Harley um, and just her facial expressions. I think at some point Riley had done up this big giant page of just Harley faces. And I was like, this is, I just want entire scenes where Harley is just reacting to nonsense because she does such amazing facial expressions. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm very excited about that.
0: Uh, I mean, I, I have a very strange personal relationship with uh, Harley Quinn because the character hasn't for me been properly nailed down uh, it's I think it's just too much like capturing gas in a bottle it's it, because we have in we have the kind of the the, the the version that we saw in heroes in crisis where she's this kind of she's in the daylight she's mixing with the heroes she's kind of it, there's the relationship she has with other characters in the dcu then you have um stephan uh, um take in harleen so i mean admittedly it's great that you can kind of come at this character from so many different directions um but i find it very difficult to nail that character down and then we have the, the animated series which is just all swears and hitting things and whatever and this it's a lot of fun um but i i think nobody has yet really kind of got a real concrete sense of who she is um, and I'm just wondering if you actually see that perhaps as a strength or a weakness um, in terms of when you're, as a writer, kind of, sort of like tackling Harley Quinn, because where the hell do you start?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, one of the cool things is I think getting to pull from amazing things that like, you know, Jimmy Palmiotti, Amanda Connor, Sam Humphries, Paul Dini, everything that they have given to this character makes the character that I'm having so much fun writing and I don't want to lose those elements. You know, I really want to I've got some pretty giant steps that i filling walking behind. Um, so that's, I mean, I think that's really cool. Um, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do is bring a little bit more of what do I like about the character. And for me, it's seeing somebody that, uh, I, I mean, yeah, this is projecting, like I just got my doctorate. So watching somebody that has gone through this amazing path to be a doctor and a psychologist and then kind of has this fall because she falls in love with Joker and what that does and this kind of search for identity. And um, one of my favorite things about Harley, and I I don't know that it's a positive in general, but Harley I think is actually really sad. She's been through a lot of trauma being with Joker. The things that she's done, the things that she has seen, uh, this is somebody that I think is actually incredibly sad. And I think sometimes the funniest people are actually the most sad. And so, like, maybe I'm bringing a lot of millennial angst to this character, but she's uh, she's going to be a bit dark here. Like, I think we've seen a lot of really bright portrayals of her, and I absolutely love those. But Gotham is a really dark place, and now you're bringing that kind of... Um, You know, the person that we've seen on Coney Island bringing her back to Gotham where a lot of this trauma happened, not to mention what Punchline did to her in the main Batman series. This is not going to be forgotten, like it is built into her design with Riley that, um, you know, this is something Harley doesn't want to look at. She doesn't want to see the scar, so she's intentionally covering it with the costume that she wears every day. So trying to find her place in a city that has pretty wildly changed, Um, having made the decision that she was going to go after Joker in Joker War and do something that she thinks Batman couldn't do. um, I think we are kind of like we were just saying with Miriam, we're seeing a character who just chose to make a lot of decisions. And now we're kind of writing, what's the fallout of those decisions? How do those play out for Harley and the people around her? and kind of finding her new purpose in Gotham. Um,
0: talking about the relationships uh, with the other characters of the MCU, we'll skip over Poison Ivy uh, for, <laughs> uh, for uh, if anything, because I, I think that relationship has uh, been explored in various other uh, uh, so aspects of uh, what Harley Quinn's doing. But I mean, the cover for uh, issue two uh, speaks volumes about what you're wanting to do with it i mean bringing black mask is um is, uh, this, this this terrifying view of uh, black mask uh, yeah. the issue of uh, cover of issue two uh i mean what were the relationships which interested you the most about uh, when like you say you're wanting to do, define or you're wanting to explore what harley quinn is after all of the uh, the, the fallout of uh, certainly of joker war and w- moving forward but that then involves the other the roster of uh, characters. It's interesting that you're mentioning Scarecrow, uh, because, yeah, that's, a, uh, that's an interesting dynamic. Uh, like I say, two very well-educated, two very bright people that have uh, put on makeup and are uh, uh, staking their claim. But that's pretty much also what we're getting with Black Mask as well, who isn't, uh, isn't um, a thick character by any uh, uh, stretch of the imagination.
1: Yes, I I really liked kind of having these two as her main, um, almost caught between them in the future state issues, uh, because I think you have two people that at least, because Future State takes place five years into the future when our character magistrate has kind of come in and really put together this program that's very anti-mask. You have one character, Jonathan Crane, who has given up the mask and decided I'm going to be a lapdog for the magistrate. And then you have Roman Sionis that's gone the opposite direction. He's taking his mask, manufacturing it and passing it out To everyone on the street saying, let's have chaos. Um, Like, I mean, his is, I think, more targeted chaos than just, like, generally smashing stores and things. Like, he has a plan and targets, but still he's very anti-magistrate. He didn't want to join that. And then you have Harley, who I think is caught in the middle of this, like, mask, no mask, good guy, bad guy debate. And I think having her between these two characters was really symbolic of where we're about to go with Harley, between this good guy, bad guy kind of dynamic. And um, also, as we saw in Joker War, her relationship with Batman has slightly changed a little bit. It is slightly more amicable than I think we've really seen before, which I love. I love this idea that Harley gets to be kind of more playful with Batman. Um, If
0: if anything, she's taking kind of the, the, the (laughs) the Catwoman role.
1: Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. And, you know, uh, Catwoman is somebody that we're interested in seeing her interact with. Like, another character that's played with this line between good and bad. Um, And what does that mean in Gotham? Like, can you be fully redeemed? And, you know, our main villains that we're going to see um, in the ongoing in March are people that have firmly taken the stance of, like, people can't change. Which maybe it's true. And then, you know, the other stance is like, well, people can change, but Harley Quinn can't. Um, So, like, how does she take to being in the public eye which we've kind of seen a little bit more with punchline being very in the public eye as this trial is going on um the punchline one shot that came out kind of explored that a lot more these are things that will all play into harley quinn moving back to gotham like will people seek her out and be like hey you owe me for this one thing that you did that was really horrible which she's done a lot of horrible things so like you know how do we deal with her past while still allowing her to push forward and find a purpose and I think one of the things I said initially to the editor when we first started working on this was like imagine my name is Earl but with Harley Quinn and Gotham
0: so
1: (laughs) 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 yeah it's it's different it's funny um but again I think Harley is not able to run from some of that trauma in the past and um I don't think she should be able to run from it I think Here we have to deal with it, we have to confront it, and Harley is finally ready to confront all of it. It's all on the table. So it's, it's yeah, it, it's one of my, I think it's one of my favorite things I've ever written. Riley's doing an incredible job. Simone de Mayo, who has done um, the Future State Issues, has set us up really nicely for the ongoing in March.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, it's 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 a gorgeous looking book. I mean, like I say, yeah, let's bring up the character design again. What uh, someone's done there with uh, Harley is just amazing. Um, I'm curious about the uh, future state and when that actually kind of uh, came onto the uh, onto your uh, radar. Considering that we have had um, a number of books cancelled DC um, in the the wake of pandemic and in the the reshaping of what it's doing. Has pared down a lot of um, lot of titles, but to then uh, bring this huge uh, future sl- uh, state um, uh, concept to the, the table. What, how long has future state been kind of like on the cards? When when did you start working on it?
1: Um, somewhere in March or April, I think we started oh, wow. working okay. on this. Yeah, so this has been. It's been in the works for a while. Um, January, February is when the two future states hit. And then I think it's towards the end of March, the ongoing. Um, And we started the ongoing not long after future state. So I think I had turned in two scripts for future state, let's say April. And then by like May, we were kind of rolling on the ongoing series.
0: That's interesting. Uh, Because uh, the the, the books that we're talking about, they're very much... Um they're, they're very much talking about the reaction to a major event uh, that to, uh, to define a character to define a universe to define uh, your own place in a universe uh, and I find that interesting in the background of 2020 and pandemic um, how do you feel that perhaps your writing has evolved or has changed in the wake of 2020?
1: Um, I mean, I think in a literal sense, <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, changed uh, spaces. I'm, you know, I'm not leaving the house, so I'm pretty, pretty chained to a desk. So I think my output has actually gotten higher just because, you know, <laughs> you know there there is no concert. like Very I mean,
0: few, when, when you take the distractions away, yeah. Yeah. Like the ability to go for a walk.
1: Yeah, I mean, I am I, I run every day. and um, wear like my little mask and stuff. Um, so I do I, I do some of that, but um, it's become very scheduled to like get up, get the coffee, start writing, take a break to go for a run, come back and just write. So um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I some of it is definitely taking longer. I mean, I know we we probably all have days where like the anxiety is at an eleven. Um, so. There are definitely days where it's like today the output is just not working, and uh, you know trying to to be a little easier on myself to not push in those moments and just kind of um, you know let myself work when I'm able. And those are things we're still learning and working on. But sure. Well, I mean, we've
0: got a question. Uh, we've been taking questions, obviously, from the uh, the Q and A, uh, and it's great that everyone's watching. Thank you very much indeed for uh, taking part, everyone. Uh, Druth, uh Horror Arts. Now, this is someone from. Uh, Mexico. Hello there. Welcome along, Greetings. Thanks for watching. Um We'll kind of take this question um on a on a craft level, as in how you it's the question is how you decide the scenarios, Stephanie Phillips. So well, I'm guessing the the question will be, what is your writing process? what what How do you put your stories together?
1: Uh, yeah, <laughs> my process is uh, I like to do a lot of handwritten work, um so I like, I like colored markers and big things of paper because I'm very visual and, like, hands-on. So, um, I mean, at some point when I was plotting something that was pretty large, I actually had these, like, sheets of construction paper, um, and I was just kind of going from one to the next of, like, like, I had these pieces of things that needed to happen, so I was kind of filling them in, like, each card was an issue. Um, and, and I mean, that helps with something that's a lot longer. Um, for for other things, you know, it's, it's nice to have an editor that... You can also bounce ideas with um, or, you know, Riley, who I'm doing the ongoing series of of, uh, Harley with Riley and I talk almost every day about new plot points and elements. So it is extremely collaborative. And um, that's something that I think helps fill in pieces and and give structure and shape to stories as well as being able to like talk through things and be like here's a cool idea here's a scene um like I mean Riley and I have all these scenes that we're like this is really cool it'd be so much fun to do this but then it's about finding fits and things for that so it's it's a little like building a puzzle um and I I like puzzles so it's it's definitely a good job for me so <laughs>
0: Are you, are you somebody that likes to kind of map out um, long distance in terms of story or do you like yeah. to kind of learn and develop almost from issue to issue right. and kind of how, how far do you map it forward? Because uh, I know that yeah. uh, when I've spoken to the likes of, um, uh, well, yeah, James Tynan, he says he knows the ending. He knows the final couple yeah. of pages. He knows where he's got to get to. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious as to for yourself what how – how loose and free you keep your story and your characters how much do they inform what's going on
1: there's i think a mix of both like i want the flexibility of um being able to change something as we're going or make adjustments and add things in that i didn't think of but like with harley quinn like, I know where issue 12 goes. Like, you know, right. we we have this pretty, so a little like what James was saying. I can saying.
0: imagine with a, with a large IP and with a large company <laughs> like these, you kind of yeah. have to have some, yeah. Okay, we're not going to let you go too far off into the wilderness. Please try and stay right. in the right way.
1: Yes, so we, I mean, we know where tw- Issue 12 wraps, like we know where those kinds of issues are leaving us. We know some major plot points that we're going to hit along the way. Um, I mean, do things change as I'm writing? Absolutely. Like I would say after writing, you know, five, six issues of Harley, I know Harley better now than I did when I wrote the first issue, Future State. And that's going to keep changing every time I write Harley. I'm going to know her better. And I think that changes a little bit of how you approach the character and um, I mean, it's one of the things I'm loving about having so much real estate with one character is I think the chance to just know somebody is, like, really good for where we're going. Um, and same with Riley. Like, I mean, the, the issue he's working on right now every time I see a page of just the character and how expressive and, um, you know, just everything from, like, facial expression to hand expression. Like, this character just is coming alive every single page between the two of us. I think we're just really getting to know her. Um, so I like having that real estate and that's, that's really nice to work with. And I think a change from some of the things I've been writing that are kind of like a four or five issue arc and done. So, um, that's, that's a, that's a thing in my career that I'm really excited that I have that opportunity to do now.
0: Cool. I mean, when I've spoken to uh, writers, certainly those that have multiple plates spinning and they, they like the idea that they can bounce from uh, story to story to at least then they're, they're not kind of limpet mining onto one uh, story <laughs> yeah. and it, they're, they're able to kind of play in the different uh, universes. I can imagine for yourself uh, it is slightly uh, <laughs> refreshing and... <laughs> yeah that kind of relief that you don't necessarily have harley's voice constantly in the back of your head because i can imagine that can be a little bit like a, a little bit of like like a virus <laughs> in some regards right. you can go to the other stories and you can come back come bounce around is harley because is she one of those characters that just can kind of be in the back of your head just
1: yes and like I don't say, like you
0: her. you started to you know her very well by this point. yes
1: yeah absolutely i mean i've i've definitely um, I don't know, maybe comfortably or not gotten to, to see a lot of similarities between myself and the character as well and um, Getting to add in some of these things that I'm like, I'm really excited to talk about why getting a PhD would make you want to smash something with a baseball bat like that's <laughs> <laughs> That makes sense to me. Um, so there are definitely ways that I'm, I'm really, and I'm not from Long Island, but I'm dropping G's. Like, you know, it's in your head all the time.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's- when,
0: when, when, when you've woken up and you found that you've dyed your hair in your sleep, that's when you start- <laughs> That's when you start panicking,
1: Getting a little little nervous. Yeah, wake up, how did this happen? Uh, No, I I love, I absolutely adore Harley. I really love the characters we're putting her in um, connection with, getting to see her interact with my favorite characters in this universe. And I think that's the most fun because Harley is so unique that she's not going to interact with you know, Catwoman or Solomon Grundy or these characters in the same way that Batman would because she's Harley Quinn. She's got such a unique perspective on the world. um, And so she's got a really unique perspective on the outcasts of Gotham. And that's something that I just absolutely love exploring. And, um, you know, the fact that DC has just really been okay with where we're going with all of this um giving us a lot of creative freedom on it is um i you know i think really exciting for both myself and riley as well
0: that's fantastic so let's uh, go i mean help me out if i'm missing any of them because uh, <laughs> you've got a lot on your plate uh, great, <laughs> which is fantastic so we've got harley quinn um DC Comics, we've got the Future State uh, issues out at the moment. You've got the ongoing coming. Uh, give us a timetable on that. That'll
1: be out in March.
0: That's March. Uh, then we've got Red Red Atlantis, which is currently ongoing from Aftershock. Um, we've got ourselves uh, another book, which I've really enjoyed you, your work on, and uh, you know, Aftershock, which we haven't gotten around to talk about, which is Descendant, uh, purely because, I mean, the artwork as well, just which yeah. is just blowing me away for that. Um, uh, Man Among Ye, that, is that still running from Image?
1: Yes, it is.
0: That's still ongoing. What else is currently out there with your name on it?
1: Um, so I think next month um, I did an issue of Rick and Morty, uh, like an extended ah. one-shot yeah, that'll be, um, Ryan Lee did the artwork for that, and it is, um, I think it's some of the most fun writing I've had, because we're working with the Death Stalkers and the character Hemorrhage from the Rick and Morty universe, who just like, in that kind of Mad Max post-apocalyptic kind of spinoff, um, and that has been a ton of fun to work on. Um, I have, let's see, in the spring, a YA book I did with A Wave Blue World that I co-wrote with Dave Johnson. Um, wow. It is my first foray into YA, um, and that has been really fun uh, artwork by um, Marika. And um, Dave and I kind of were working on putting the ideas for that one together. So, um, yeah, that's...
0: I've been, I've been so excited about what Wave, Wave Blue World are doing. Uh, that is yeah, such a, an interesting publisher. What a cool... Yeah, that's yeah. great. Okay, that's... Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I, and I think probably by next week we'll be announcing some more DC stuff, which is super fun.
0: <laughs> oh, the timing of this couldn't have been better. Which means we can't talk about it, but yeah, watch it. Watch this space. Watch this space. Right. Excellent stuff. And then last but not least, of course, Tana out on uh, Wednesday. Uh, do go check it out uh, from the uh, the pages and from the screen of Heavy Metal Magazine. Um, the, like I say, the the artwork that I've seen uh, is incredible. What I, the way that you've been describing the character and what you you've got plans for, we're talking uh, some, yeah. For um, uh, what else? Uh, there's um, all sorts of uh, characters yeah. that I can think of. That kind of real. <laughs> Uh, big, bold, bombastic kind of uh, yeah.
1: a little uh, silver surfer esque. Yeah, yeah. There's,
0: there's the other yeah. one, there's the other yeah. one. Um, uh, there's uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, the uh, no, I can't forget, I can't, I can't, I can't. It's it's gone. No <laughs> Never mind. Uh, but certainly from what I've seen of it, I'm really looking forward to uh, to reading this. It, it is such a, an incredible looking book. Um, thank you very much indeed for coming on and talking thank to you. us. It's been an absolute blast. Uh, we do have uh, the question from uh, Droof Horror Arts cool. uh, asking, where can people follow you? Uh, now, I know your uh, Twitter if you want to just follow yeah. uh, away.
1: It's at uh, Steph underscore Smash.
0: And I'm going to bring that up on screen because at least then everyone can kind of follow and uh, keep an eye on it. Uh, at least then I will uh, put that uh, up on the screen and it looks a little bit like that and that. That's the account that you want to follow. Is it just on Twitter? Where's the best place for people to follow you?
1: Yeah, that, that's probably the best. I always forget that there are other social media that I have, so honestly, <laughs> I think Twitter is the only one I use with any regularity, so.
0: Yeah. If you go to uh, MySpace and type in Steph yes, underscore slash, that's, that's not going to come up anytime soon. <laughs> you, you, you're I would put
1: you in my top eight if we could still have space. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of miss that. I really miss the judgmental top eights. I think some people need to be put back in their place. So. I'm bringing <laughs> all four. You touched on a millennial topic here that I'm like, oh, MySpace.
0: <laughs> you know what? I think – the old social medias need to come back because the new ones aren't really helping us a great deal. I know. <laughs> yeah, we keep trying to design new ones. Let's just bring the old ones back. Let's, yeah. we we my AOL back, please. Let's Yeah, we'll yep. yeah, yeah, leave <laughs> Steph, it there. Stephanie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much Thank indeed for coming you. on. And uh, congratulations and all the best of luck with all the rest of the titles. Thank gone.
1: you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you so much.
0: And stuff. So there you go. Um, do go check out uh, Stephanie's books. Uh, like I say, what she's been putting out for 2020 has been incredible, and 2021 looks like the year is just going to be bigger and better. Fantastic stuff. Right, that's been our incidental episode. Thank you very much indeed for joining us for that. We are back again tomorrow as we have ourselves um, a uh, a pretty cool episode that's going to be uh, taking place uh, tomorrow. Uh, We've got ourselves uh, two for the price of one, Uh, so hopefully you can join us, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. GMT, as we are going to be joined by um, Matt Medney, who is the CEO of Heavy Metal Magazine, and also legendary uh, artist uh, Bob Fingerman. He's going to be joining us as well. 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. GMT. Uh, That's going to be on Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego uh, tomorrow. Thank you so much indeed. Once again, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do like, subscribe, comment, uh, let us know what you thought. Let us know who you'd like to see on future episodes of uh, Talking Con A Cup of Tea with an Englishman in San Diego. For myself, Len Sultana, and Stephanie Phillips. Take care and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Bye bye. Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego, is hosted by Leonard Sultana, who can be found at EnglishmanSDCC. Talking Con is a production of the Convention Collective. Support the podcast at patreon.com slash englishmanSDCC.